Please stand for the reading of God's word. From James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Just because I like clapping. Hey, all souls, good to be with you this week. I missed you last week. I was in Elko, Nevada, just the Paris of the West. I highly recommend it. If you can ever get there, it's, uh, it's really, really something. Uh, but I'm back and excited to be back with you all. We are continuing in James. We are in James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. And I will say, we're just doing a few verses, but it is deep. And it is challenging and I love passages like this because it takes a very narrow thing, a really simple idea and something that we do all the time and, and barely ever consider to be sin. And James identifies kind of what's the sin beneath the sin beneath the sin, what's happening underneath that causes us to do this behavior that none of us would ever really consciously think about as sin. So I love this passage for that reason. I hate this passage because it's all about me, right? Like this is my sin. This is absolutely the way I function in the universe. I tell my wife this all the time. My wife is like hyper present. She was only thinking about what is happening right now, and my brain is constantly in the future, always in the future, all the time, and I am predicting what will happen in the future all the time. Little did I know I was a terrible sinner for such a thing, and so this is a fun passage, but it's also a really challenging passage for someone like me. So we're just going to walk through it verse by verse, and uh, hopefully by the end you're crying from conviction. Okay, so verse 13, he says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. So here's what uh, the, the today version of this is, is I'm going to start a business and six months from now, we're going to be making a million bucks a year and then five million, 10, 12, and then we'll be running the world, right? Or I'm going to find a girl, we're going to get married, we're going to have three kids, we're going to get a house in the suburbs or whatever. Or I am going to uh, go to this school, I'm going to graduate with honors, I'm going to do this thing or that thing. Or something really simple like, hey, in three weeks, I'm going to go on vacation, it's going to be awesome. Or I'm going to project the future of my company or I'm whatever it is, right? Something we do all the time and I would challenge you if any of you ever thought about it as sin. And yet that is exactly what James is saying here. So the question is, is this really so bad that James would call it evil and sin? Or are we like nitpicking here, right? Like is James just being one of those like annoying legalists who's like, well, you know, you shouldn't be doing that either, right? Especially considering he was just talking about worldliness in the previous passage, talking about murder and adultery and fighting each other. And then he's like, oh yeah, and one more thing, don't predict the future, 
right? Like as if that's the same kind of thing, right? And on top of it all, his solve, right? Did you catch what his solve was when I read the scriptures? He says in verse 15, instead of predicting the future, instead of saying we're going to go in such and such town and make money or whatever, he goes, instead, this is what you should do. You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will go and live in this and do this or that, right? Like that's the solution. Like it's sin if we go, hey, I'm going to go and this is what's going to happen in the future. It's not sin if I go, if the Lord wills, we're going to go and do this and I'm going to predict the future, right? Like that's the, that's the difference, right? Like adding a lame Christian cliche to the front of our sentence is the way to avoid sin. Like that can't be it because that would be very annoying, okay? And so here's what I think James wants us to see and we're going to unpack this as we go. James wants us to see that this kind of thinking and acting is actually a human attempt at omnipotence. It is a divine power grab. It is a default way of thinking about our lives that assumes we know the future, we control the future, and it's actually reflective of something far, far deeper. And he gives us two reasons why this is so, why this is the case. First, the pragmatic reason, right? Verse 14, he says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Simple. You don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. I mean, have you ever had a day that you thought, wow, if you'd have told me yesterday that this is what was going to be happening, I never would have believed you right? Like we can't often predict what's going to happen tomorrow, let alone months and years and decades down the road, right? Like just very pragmatically, we don't actually know. So here's what I want you to do. Repeat after me. I don't know. Good. Repeat after me. I am a finite and limited being. Great job, okay? That was big of you to be able to admit that out loud that you are just a human and you don't actually know the future, right? Like 2020 should prove once and for all that we do not know what the future is going to hold. Think of all the New Year's resolutions that were ruined in 2020 by COVID and all of the crazy stuff that happened in 2020. Now, that doesn't stop us from making predictions about 2021. I remember all the people were like, ah, oh, 2021 is going to be totally different. It's going to be the best year ever. And it was basically the same, right? 2022, that's going to be the, no, nobody knows. Nobody knows the future. That's the good news, right? The good news is that we don't know. And if we were smart, if we were humble, if we were Christian, we would actually live into those limitations. We would embrace our finiteness, rejoice in it even. Like rejoice in the fact that I don't know the future, therefore I'm not responsible for the future. I don't have to stress about the future. That we would be able to embrace our humanness. Now, technology is one of those ways in which we attempt to subvert God and the limitations that he's given us and try to be something more than we are. Technology has always, from the very, the most rudimentary technologies of like the wheel, right? Have always existed to extend human capability, right? 
And we always had this dream of a utopia that we will build. And here we are, thousands of years of human history with the most advanced technology we have ever seen, and we have not built a utopia, right? Like the promises of technology expanding our limitations always fail to deliver. We're gonna talk about why this is a good thing in just a moment. But first, the second reason, first was the pragmatic reason, you just don't know. The second is the theological reason. So back to verse 14. He says, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. And what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. What is your life, James says? How about that for a question? How about you just take a day and reflect on that question? What is your life? Now, theologically speaking, because he's asking a theological question, he's quoting out of uh, the book of Proverbs, or, or excuse me, the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon asking these kind of philosophical questions about our life being a vapor and all those things. The theological answer to the question, what is your life, is you are an image bearer of God. You were created in the image of God and deeply broken by sin. That's the simplest theological answer to what is your life. You are made in the image of God and broken by sin. You are Genesis 1 plus Genesis 3. That is what your life is, right? Like our, our value, our inherent dignity is derived from Genesis 1 and that image bearingness that God gave us. And some of our limits come from Genesis 1. Don't forget that, right? Like that was the temptation that God had placed limits on Adam and Eve, and they didn't like those limits, and Satan tempted them to, to rebel against those limits. Being a human means you are finite and not infinite. It means you are present and not omnipresent, right? It means you are human and not God. But we'll get there in a second. Genesis 1 is what, where we get our value and our dignity. Genesis 3 is where our limitations were multiplied right? Sin only multiplies our limitations and with it our desire to overcome those limitations and not simply exist contentedly as human beings made in the image of God. Now, this is essential to what we might call a Christian anthropology, okay? How about that one? Say it after me, Christian anthropology. Those are your big words for the day, okay? A Christian anthropology is a, a way of understanding what is a human, that's anthropology, the study of humanity, but from a Christian standpoint, okay? So what does the Bible say? What does the gospel say about what a human is? Well, the essential to a Christian anthropology is we are human, not divine. We are created, not creator. We are present, not omnipresent. We are knowing, but not all-knowing. We are responsible, but we are not sovereign. And, and I could go on and on and on and on. There's a lot of things that make us human and, 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 and strictly human, not divine. So as an aside, I would say if you are not a Christian, I would ask you the same question. What is your life? How do you think about your life? And, and where does that come from? Where does that conviction about what your life is come from, right? The, uh, how do we define our value, non-Christian? How, how do you define your value? How do you, uh, is it from performance? Is it from production? Is it, is it from self-expression? Like, how do you conceive of your life? 
Much of our human frustration comes from our unwillingness to accept our limitations. Now, that is wildly counter to everything that the world tells us around, uh, says around us, right? The world would say all of our frustrations come from our limitations, mostly social constructs that have been put on us by the powerful that have been trying to control us since the beginning of time through uh, ethics and rules and primarily sexual mores trying to hold us down. And, and that, that would be the expressive individualism of our culture would say that the number one reason we are frustrated and not our true selves is because of limitation. The Bible says the exact opposite. The exact opposite. The Bible says that all of our frustration as humans comes from our unwillingness to accept our limitations, which is exactly what we see in Genesis chapter three, that Satan comes to Adam and Eve and says, Hey, you like your life? And they're like, yeah, it's pretty good. And they go, yeah, but why won't God let you be God? And for the first time, they realized that there was a gap between themselves and God. They, until then, lived in perfect relationship with God, never had any sense of discontentment. They had perfect relationship with each other and themselves and the rest of God's creation. And they lived in contentment because they never aspired to be something more than what God made them to be. And yet the serpent comes in and goes, hey, but what if you were God? What if, what if God stopped holding you down and allowed you to be more like him, knowing the difference between good and evil? It's not that they didn't know the difference between good and evil. They didn't know evil. There was only good because they accepted the limitations of their humanity and the arrangement that God had created in their relationship. And we fail that same core sin. That same original sin is the sin that we fail today. We are not content being human. We are not content with our limitations. We're not content being who God made us to be and allowing God to be who God is. We want to be God. We want to be in control. We want the glory. We want to know. We want to be God and do God things and be sovereign over everything and to be in control of our whole life. And not only is that impossible, but it's actually a terrible thing to desire, to desire to be something that you could never be. And we'll talk about that more in just a moment. But James first wants to remind us how the universe really works. So verse 15, he says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So let's uh, just get this out in the open now. People who say churchy things are the worst, right? They should all be punched in the face, okay? So James's solution here isn't, no, just add a churchy preamble and then go ahead and do, you know, do whatever you want. All you gotta do is say the churchy thing at the front. Well, if the Lord wills, then we can go and do this or that. That is not the solution. So is adding this little preamble on the front the point? No, and kind of yes. Is it just a pious cliche? It could be, that's entirely up to you. Dramatic pause, or am I waiting for the recording? <laughs> I didn't know you were stopping there. Yeah. Right. Good? Yep. 
but it doesn't have to be, right? It can be just a pious cliche that you add onto the front of that sentence and then do whatever the heck you want. And that would be a complete waste of time and missing James' point. But it could also be a tool that you use to shape who you actually want to be. If it's a reflection of a heart level conviction about the sovereignty of God, then it is absolutely a great thing. If, if you say, if the Lord wills, out of a genuine conviction that, that I don't know the future, and I really mean that if the Lord wills, then I'm going to marry this girl and I'm going to go have this job, or I'm going to start this company and it's going to go this way, or whatever it is, if that is coming out of a genuine conviction, then yes, then yes, it is the point because it's a way to vocalize your convictions. Now, there's a middle ground. It's not just one or the other. It's not just if it's a pious cliche, no. And if it's a true heart conviction, yes. There's this middle ground, which I would say is you should still say it even if you don't fully believe it. Why? Four reasons. One, it's true. Never hurts to say true things. If the Lord wills, I will go do this or that is true objectively, fundamentally true. Number two, it can remind you that you are not God. Simply adding the practice, if it's conscious, a conscious practice of saying, if the Lord wills, I will go do this or that. And you don't have to say it exactly that, but it's some sort of verbal acknowledgement that you don't know the future and you don't control the future can actually remind you of that fact. Number three, it bears witness to the fact that you understand you are not God. So it's not just that it's true. It's not just that it could help you. But by saying it out loud, you're also bearing witness to that true statement for anyone who might hear it. Okay. Number four, that practices like these are liturgies that shape us profoundly. The habits and activities that we do over and over and over and over and over and over and over actually shape our understanding of the world, shape our character, shape our beliefs. So this is why, in part, this is a great example of why we do communion every single week. Is there a way to do communion in such a way that it is a trite religious practice that means nothing? Yes, absolutely. Is there a way for it to be a deeply meaningful spiritual practice that transforms your heart every single week? Yes, and that would be fantastic. Most of us don't live in either one of those poles. Most of us live somewhere in the middle where we should continue to do the practice of taking communion because it is a liturgy that shapes us and, and it gives us the opportunity to be reminded of our need for the cross. Similarly, Saying something out loud that acknowledges, we say is true and acknowledges that truth can shape us and the people around us. And so this is a kind of a practical thing that James is giving us. Now, let's get to the good part and peel back some of these layers, some of these sin underneath the sin, desire underneath the desire. Verse 16, he says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. And all such boasting is evil. He says, at the root of this, saying something flippant about the future, we're going to go do this, and this is how it's going to play out, and I can predict this, and I know what's going to happen. If I do this, this is going to happen. I meet this person, they're going to like me, and all whatever it is, is arrogance at the end of the day. It's just arrogance. 
It's, it's assuming you know more than you do. And that is the sin beneath this otherwise kind of benign idea. And again, we, we might think James is being a little nitpicky here, but, but just think about this for a fact that we do unconsciously is actually deeply rooted in arrogance. Uh, in the early 5th century, an African priest you may have heard of by the name of Augustine wrote a book called The City of God. Hugely influential, probably one of the 10 most influential Christian books and maybe one of the 20 most influential books of, of antiquity. And in that book, he builds the case that the way sin works in a person is by turning them in towards themselves. And the phrase that he coins in this book in the Latin is incurvitus in si. Okay? And it just means the, the soul turned in or curved in on itself. And he describes this as the way in which sin works, right? That it turns us in on ourselves, our own ideas, our own thoughts, our own needs. And we, we grow increasingly selfish. And the more we look at ourselves, we grow increasingly arrogant as well. And he uses this as his primary metaphor. Now, a thousand years later, Martin Luther built out this same idea in his book, Lectures on Romans. He says this, Our nature, by the corruption of the first sin, being so deeply curved in on itself, that it not only bends the best gifts of God towards itself and enjoys them, as is plain in the works righteousness and the hypocrites, or rather even uses God himself to attain these gifts, but it also fails to realize that it so wickedly, curvedly, and viciously seeks all things, even God, for its own sake. Right? So Luther basically says the way sin works is it takes everything, it works like a black hole, like a vacuum, that it sucks up everything around itself to use for itself starts with desires and things, it moves to people, the gifts of God, and then finally God himself. All things simply exist for the sake of the self. Now, uh, a few years ago, New Yorker magazine actually communicated this very idea on its cover, and we'll put the picture up here in just a minute. Now, this, this idea of the self being turned in on itself, the person being turned in on itself because they're on their phone, I means just think about the way technology has supercharged this process. You live now in a world where everything is curated for your very needs. For every algorithm is working to deliver you exactly what you want when you want it. That, I mean, think about that, how that creates a, an intense, uh, uh, self-repeating, self-aggrandizing, self-focused, self-obsessed kind of world. That's what technology is doing. It's only supercharging what has been happening, according to Augustine, since the fall. So, James... Augustine, Luther, and the New Yorker all tell us that the sin beneath the sin is self-absorbed arrogance that, that lies just beneath the surface of all of our actions and reflects what I would call an unconscious atheism that allows our will to be done, that demands our will to be done, that works all things so that our will is done. In other words, we live out our days 
as, as if God does not exist in real life. So we say things like, I'm going to go here and do this, and that's going to be the outcome as if one, we know anything and two, we can cause outcomes by our behavior and three, God plays no part in it at all. So if we just take a moment to consider like what, what are the presumptions that are actually happening that would cause us to say, I'm going to go here. I'm going to do that. When we actually don't know anything, we're not in control of anything. And God is very real. And the other side of the same coin is anxious worrying. So the, there's a bunch of people in this room who are like, I'm going to plan this. This is going to happen. I'm in control. And then there's a whole bunch of people who go, I have no control. I don't know what's going to happen. The future is uncertain. At the end of the day, it's the same sin. It's the same sin. It's self-absorbed arrogance. It's the, the sin of everything depends on me. I'm the center of the universe. God plays no part. It's the same sin. Arrogance or anxiety come from that same place of being the, having the self at the center of the universe, saying, I am the center and the future depends on me. James calls this evil. And here in verse 17, he calls it sin. And I want us to see why if we haven't already. Verse 17, he says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now, what is sin? For those of you who are not Christian, you may have this big sense of what is sin, but let me define it this way. Sin is any thought, action, or impulse that redirects our loves away from Christ, that takes our eyes and our heart off of God. And at the heart of this issue is the fact that the person who plans their future doesn't in any way need Jesus. The presumption is, I know what's going to happen, I can control the outcome, and I, can, I, I am sure that that's going to go that way, which means you have no need for God. There is no place for Jesus in your mind or life. Now, here's the good news. James corrects this arrogant self-orientation because the only way, the only way to find peace and joy and satisfaction in this world is if we are actually outwardly oriented. Now, think about this. Augustine, Luther, James all say that the core of sin is a turning in on oneself. And that may not be a concept you've thought of before, but think about why it makes perfect sense. What is the greatest commandment according to Jesus in Matthew? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And what's the second? To love your neighbor as yourself. The core of what it means to be human is to be outwardly oriented. And so it makes sense that the key sin, the, 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 the core and source of all sin would be to turn us in on ourselves. You were made to be outward oriented. You were made to be focused on God and other people. This isn't a burdensome law where God calls us to lay down what is good and normal and natural for something impossibly sacrificial. It's, in fact, a, a commandment that is an invitation into the only way to truly experience joy and satisfaction. To when we can embrace 
who God made us to be, when we can embrace our limitations, embrace our neediness, embrace the fact that we are imperfect and in need of God to guide and direct and to even give us the very breath in our lungs, that is the only hope we have to experience peace and joy. There's a reason why we are, as a nation, chemically dependent on, uh, for anxiety and depression. And it's precisely because we are trying to be something we were never meant to be. Something that only God can be. That is, God himself. One more time from Luther. He says, in fact, they would have been better able to be like gods if they had in obedience adhered to the supreme and real ground of their being. If they had not in pride made themselves their own ground. For created gods are gods not in their own true nature, but by participation in the true God. But aiming at more, a man is diminished. When he elects to be self-sufficient and defects from the one who is really sufficient for him. Did you catch what Augustine said? In, in, in very deep 5th century language, he said, When you try to be on your own, you unplug yourself from the only power that could ever make you whole. And so the grasping for more, the grasping for godlikeness is actually a removal of yourself from any hope of peace and joy, love, hope, and the kind of satisfaction we were made for. That is all found in Christ. So possibly you've never thought one time in your whole life that planning for the future with any kind of certainty had at its root such a deep and profound atheism. But I hope that we will be made aware, that our eyes will be opened to the idea that if we do not root our lives in an ultimate dependence on God, if we don't in fact embrace the limitations of our humanity, we are functioning detached from him without need for him. And that is a far lesser experience. Our only hope is to throw ourselves down at the feet of God, begging for mercy, asking to be made whole again in spite of our rebellion, in spite of the fact that we have curved in on ourselves when in fact we were made for outwardness to God and to the people around us. Let's pray. Jesus, we are, whether we like it or not, whether we admit it or not, entirely dependent upon you for the synapses firing in our brains, for our cells to multiply, for the breath in our lungs, for, the, uh, for every, ab absolutely every pump of our heart, every function of our body, every cognitive ability, every relationship that we have, every good gift comes from you. And so it is uh, foolhardy of us to try to pull away from you to try to be something without you. And it detaches us from the source of power and love and hope and humanity and joy and peace, all the things we were made for. So God, this, this one tiny little, maybe trite seeming example that we might, might, might pretend that we know the future and act as if we can define the future might actually unveil in us a deep, deep arrogance and in fact a deep atheism 
that we try to navigate the world without you. May that convict us so that in, instead of trying to navigate the world without you, we would grow ever more dependent on you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.